All right, men. It is uh, 6.30 a.m. And we got a lot to talk about with these Nephilim. So um, did you figure out at your tables who they were? <laughs> um, yeah, this was, this was a fun week to, to really dig in and study some commentaries and read some really interesting theories on, on what all this is. But uh, we'll, get, we'll get into that towards the end. Um, but let me pray for us, and then we'll, we'll dive in and see what's going on here in these genealogies. Uh, God, we're, we're grateful to uh, come and to sit before your word and to uh, do our best, Father, to, to see and to treasure what we find therein, Lord, to, to glean your truth from even lists of genealogies, Lord, and try to apply that truth to our lives. We know that all Scripture is God-breathed, and it's useful and profitable for, for teaching us, for crafting us and perfecting us into the men that you desire us to be. So I pray that um, little by little, day by day, we'd, we'd point our hearts towards your word, including this morning, and you would uh, allow us to soak up those nutrients and, and um, Lord, grow, grow into to men that are uh, stronger in our faith, stronger in our love for you, uh, more diligent in walking with you, more diligent in leading our wives and our children. Um, Lord, this world is, is falling apart in so many different ways, and your answer in the midst of, of chaos has always been faithful men um, who will follow you faithfully. So I pray that we'd be those kind of men. I pray that we'd be uh, men who find favor with you. Um, so God, our time. It's in your name that we pray all these things. Amen. All right. Um, real quick, as we've been doing, I want to want to pause for a moment and just talk about our themes that we've been tracking. Here's the four big ones. Uh, who saw some of these this week? Where'd you see them? I uh, would love to give you guys a chance to, to point these out. Blessing, anybody see that anywhere in here? I don't normally give you a chance to talk. Yes. Where? What did you see? Yeah. Yeah. Seth being born. Not just Seth. I, I think like all of this multiplication. We're getting genealogies of, of two different lines, Cain's line and then of Seth's. You're seeing... Uh, them fulfilling the blessing that God gave them, the mandate He gave them to fill the earth and, and multiply, um, and, and all of that life is, is a part of His blessing of them. So, for sure, that's where I see it as well. Um, how about sin and judgment? <laughs> see any of that this week? <laughs> yeah, that one we don't even have to really talk about because it's everywhere. Uh, lots of development on that front, um, especially as you get to uh, chapter 6 and sort of see the sin filling the earth, uh, and God sort of making this dramatic contrast from what we saw in, in chapter 1. Remember, he, he saw His creation and He said that it was very good. He inspected everything He made as He had completed that process and uh, expressed great pleasure at what He saw. And now it's the complete opposite. He gives this devastating judgment in verse 5 of chapter 6. Every intention of the thoughts of um, his heart was only evil continually. That's God describing mankind. And, and that's, that's huge. We'll talk about that more as we go. But, um, but absolutely, sin is spreading, is corrupting, and judgment is coming. Uh, it's promised here this week. Next week, we're going to see it come in the form of the flood. Uh, but you got a little taste of it as, as God's sort of um, giving this indictment at the beginning of chapter 6. Uh, grace, do you see any grace in there? Yeah, Noah. That's the place I see it the most for sure as well. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Um, that word favor, we'll talk about this more later as well, but that word is, 
is also translated grace. Um, so the, the first time in Scripture, the word grace is actually showing up. Um, and then covenant, uh, we're not seeing that a ton here in this passage. Again, that's going to be something that builds as Genesis uh, unfolds. Um, but I, I do think I see just sort of a, a glimmer of it really in sort of a uh, looking back more than anything else. Remember Genesis 3. I want you to track this because this, this seems to be something that's going to be more significant than I realized when I was first starting this study myself. But uh, after the fall of mankind, after Adam and Eve sin in the garden, God gives this glimmer of hope as he's giving curses and, and judgments upon them. He gives a glimmer of hope to Eve. And what was it? He said, you know, you will have a descendant. Uh, you'll, you'll bear a seed and, and from your descendant uh, will come deliverance from all this judgment. You know, the, him and, there'll be enmity between your descendants and the snake, but there will be a descendant who will crush the head of the, of the snake. The snake will bruise his heel, but he will crush his head. Um, and so right from the beginning, you sort of get this, this you know, proto-gospel, this glimmer of prophetic hope of a, of a covenant that will want to come, that will uh, offset what sin has done. Um, and we saw, uh, you know, as, as uh, uh, Eve has Cain, she's actually, uh, I was reading a really, I didn't bring this up last week, but I was reading an interesting commentary that sort of said, in Cain's name, uh, which sort of signifies appointed. She, Eve is thinking that Cain, the first son, is the one. She just thought the, the promise would be fulfilled immediately. And so even as she names him, she's thinking, oh, here's the one. Well, it turns out not to be. He kills his brother. Um, but then she names, um, she names Seth, and his name, oh, his name is appointed. I forget what Cain's is. But, but in, in a similar way, she just is expressing, even in the naming of these children, if you study the Hebrew, you're, you're catching this glimpse of hope that she has, that perhaps this is the child. Perhaps God is going to undo the mistake that we've made in our children, which all of us as parents know that we, <laughs> we have great hopes for our kids that they're not going to make the mistakes that we made. Um, so I think that's playing out. But then uh, look at verse uh, chapter 5, verse 29, if you will. Uh, this is generations later when Noah is being born, and his dad Lamech says, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work. So generations later, 10 generations later, there's still this sort of messianic hope. This, this is the one. Perhaps this is the one that, that this relief will come from. So all that to be said, it's, it's not a covenant specifically, but it's a glimmer of a covenant. It's sort of them uh, right from the start. I, I never realized this before, but even from the beginning, they were already having this messianic hope develop in their hearts as God promised deliverance that would one day come. So just wanted to point that out. Um, but with that, let's, uh, let's get into... Our text, there's a lot to cover. Uh, Nephilim, what, do, what does that even mean? Um, okay, <laughs> this week we're, we're given a connection between the first family and the flood. So the whole point of, of what's playing out in this text is uh, to allow Moses for the people of Israel to give them a history of sort of how that all transpired. So uh, he unpacks two genealogies from Adam down to Noah. First, he gives us a glimpse of Cain. That's what we saw in chapter 4. We see Cain having departed Eden and, and now being cast out even east of, of the gate of Eden. He settles into the land of Nod, we were told last week, and he builds a city. He begins to have children. We see his, uh, his line descending. Moses gives us the first seven generations of his, uh, of, of his genealogy, um, and sin is unfolding on that line. We'll talk about that in a moment. But, but then we're also given the line of Seth. Uh, Moses turns his attention back to Adam and Eve, and he begins to uh, share the genealogy of the other side of Adam and Eve's family. And, and they have more kids than just Cain, Abel, and Seth. We're told that they have other sons and daughters. Um, in fact, their other sons and daughters become the wives of Cain and Abel. Um, uh, and well, Abel didn't have a wife that we know of. But, um, 
but back then you married your sister because that's all that the was in the world. So um, interesting um, little thing to think about there. But, um, but we're given his genealogy. We're told of this new generation of, of, uh, of, of mankind spreading through Seth. Um, and then it all sort of concludes, as we, as we get both of those lines, you see distinction between the two lines. But it concludes in chapter 6 with this glimpse of the flood as, as Moses sort of anticipates the judgment that's coming. Um, so much going on here, but let me try to condense it down into a few bullet points for you. Uh, i got four points this morning I want to talk about. First one's this. Uh, there have always been two very different ways to live. Um, I think that Moses' primary point in going through these two genealogies is to bring up before our eyes two distinct ways of living that, honestly, he is still putting before the Israelites in his day. If you've ever read Deuteronomy, you know Deuteronomy chapter 30, he's sort of uh, in preaching to the Israelites before they go into the promised land. He says, see, I've set before you today life and death, blessing and curse. Choose life so that you may live. He's He's reminding them, follow God, don't follow yourselves. And and right here in uh, the beginning of the Pentateuch, in Genesis, he's showcasing from the beginning of mankind, there has been this same choice in all of our hearts between these two ways to live. The first way we see in the line of Cain, um, and I think you could call this way, if if you wanted to write down this phrase to describe the first way of living, it would be a heart for self and for glorifying our own name. Basically, living for yourself, living for sin. It lives to uh, make our own name great. Uh, Cain and his line, they still uh, have that purpose of dominion that God has given them to fill the earth and to multiply. They're doing that. Um, But they're doing that, in a sense, to build their own name and and to gratify themselves along the way. And we see that multiple times in chapter 4. If you've got your your Bible, if you've got your text there, flip back to 4. And I want to just show you this. Three times we see this heart for self, this self-glorifying attitude show up. First... Uh, there where Cain decides to name the city that he found, finds after himself, after his son. Uh, self-glory. You know, he wants his, his legacy, his name, his son's name to endure. Uh, I think you also see it in this polygamy that shows up in uh, Lemek. This, this came up in our study this week. I hope you paid attention to that. But God clearly, with Adam and Eve, designed marriage to be two becoming one. And yet, and for generations, that's all that happened. But suddenly with Lamech, seven generations into Cain's line, uh, he now decides in sinfulness, I'm not fully satisfied with my one. I'd like another one. And he, for the first time, steps into polygamy, something that's going to be a huge problem for God's people uh, in uh, the Old Testament uh, again and again and again. Um, But he is gratifying himself. He's putting himself first. He doesn't care about God's law and God's design for things. He wants to fulfill his own heart. I also think you see it in this uh, verse 23, this murder poem that he writes about this guy he killed. And then he sort of ascribes to himself this protection that God gave to Cain he, he says, no, it's for me. He gives it to himself. It's just very arrogant. He's stepping into the place of God, refusing to allow any punishment to come upon himself for his own sin. He's living how he wants, and he doesn't want any consequences from it. It's a heart for self. It's a, it's a, uh, a very interesting thing. And in his line, you definitely see in Cain's line, dominion happening. Like mankind is inventing instruments and building cities and uh, going into the world like God created them to do and using creation to create order. They're doing all that stuff, but why are they doing it? for themselves. They're sort of, it's dominion that's corrupted. It's dominion that's built in and and bent in on itself to glorify its own name. God created us to fill the earth so that the glory of God would fill the earth. But this other way of living does the exact opposite. It, in sin, turns towards itself. The second way to live is contrasted there in the line of Seth, a heart for God, 
a heart for glorifying his name. Um, and again, you see this at multiple points. First, in, in uh, verse 26 of chapter 4, uh, here right from the start, as Seth is born and then his son Enosh, it says, at that time people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Uh, that's an interesting phrase. The Hebrew there is interesting as well, but um, I loved this. Martin Luther, uh, the great reformer from the Reformation, he saw this verse as the formation of, he calls it a small church, in which Adam, as high priest, rules everything by the word and sound doctrine. Calvin even saw this as uh, the first church forming. That there in Cain's line, his, or not Cain's, Seth's line, you see uh, people beginning to worship. Yes, there's still sin playing out. Um, they're not a perfect line. Sin has corrupted the whole earth. And yet, on their side, you see people wanting to glorify God in His name. I think you also see this with Enoch. You know, in chapter 5, you get generation after generation after generation of Seth's line. And on the seventh line, you see this interesting guy, Enoch, who never dies. That's significant. Um, but how is he described? He's described as walking with God. He, he lived this life in communion with God. You see that same description applied to Noah. As well, the 10th generation down there, he's described, this is looking ahead to next week, but he's described as a righteous man, blameless in his generation. So I say all that to say, just notice how Moses is bringing up to our eyes these two contrasting paths, these two ways of living. And I think it still stands, you know, for all of us today, that same choice is before each of your hearts right now. Who will you live for? How will you spend your time? How will you uh, spend your money? How will you, how will you live your life? Who are you there to glorify? Um, the great theologian Augustine wrote an entire book about this. You might be familiar with it. It's called City of God, where he contrasts two different cities. And he, they're not literal cities like Atlanta or, or Houston or something like that. It's, it's two spiritual cities, the city of man and the city of God. And he says in there, there's two different cities that are formed by two different loves. The earthly city by the love of self even to the contempt of God. And then there's the heavenly city by the love of God, even to the contempt of self. It's this contrast between will we live for, for, for God, will we live for ourselves? Francis Schaeffer, another great theologian, he called these the two different humanities. Um, Jesus called it the two paths. There's the wide path that leads to destruction. There's the narrow path that leads to life. Whatever you want to call it, you, you can see uh, there in Moses or there in Moses' words here in Genesis 4 and 5, uh, there's always been two different ways to live. So the question I just want to bring up to your minds this morning is, which one are you living on? You know, do some self-inspection, men. Are you, like, like truly, I, I know it's easy to say, I'm living for God, I, I live for His glory, but, but what would your life evidence say? You know, if someone was inspecting your life, inspecting the way you, you spend your time, spend your money, spend your attention, you know, what is most important to you for, for real? What is that thing in your heart that if you didn't have or if you'd never get, that you'd be most upset about? You know, uh, what is it that, that you, you live for the most? Whose glory do you live for the most? I think, I think this is trickier than we might realize. And I think it's worth taking time to inspect it and, and to inspect our hearts against it as, as Moses is bringing this up before our eyes. There's two ways of living, and we're clearly called to live one of the ways. Which brings us to the second point. Uh, number two, you were made to walk with God. Um, of these two paths, God has absolutely designed you for one. You were made for deep daily, intimate communion with God Himself. Um, to live your life walking with Him. And this, this did not end, though it was experienced in a fuller way in the garden in Eden by Adam. You know, God's walking in the cool of the day. They're able to, to walk with Him. Um, it didn't end there. 
God still created us to walk with him. And we know this because Enoch pulled this off. Like, look at, look at chapter 5, if you will, for a moment. Um, you almost get this really interesting, repetitive, uh, you know, poetry thing that was happening back in chapter 1 where Moses is like saying the exact same phrase again and again and again. And, and what word screams out the most to you in that? This is one of the questions from the study. I think, I think it was trying to get us to say the word death. Because again and again, generation after generation, they're having kids, they're multiplying, that's true, but they're all dying. The judgment of sin is absolutely, that God promised, is absolutely playing out. Generation after generation falls into death. Um, And yet amidst all that, suddenly the pattern breaks with Enoch because he doesn't die. It's the weirdest thing ever. He's one of two people in the Bible, only two humans that we know of, uh, written in Scripture that never had a natural death. Enoch and the prophet Elijah in the Old Testament as well. Um, and, and we're told the, the reason why God just took him away. And interestingly, uh, the reason why he took him away was because he lived his life walking with God. That's the phrase used there. Um, and really interestingly, it's the exact same phrase. If you look ahead to, to verse 9 of chapter 6, it's exactly what, what uh, Moses used, the same phrase, to describe how Noah lived, that he also walked with God. So it's almost like Moses is putting before our eyes, there's, there's a phrase that's supposed to be the pattern for how God designed us to live in a world you know, corrupted by sin. We're to walk with Him. So what does that mean? What does it mean to walk with God? Well, there's no elaborate description given in our text, but I don't think it's you know, altogether complicated to think about what this means. It's, it's deep, regular communion with God. It's not living our lives independent of Him, but dependent on Him. Not living with God just a part of your life, but Him as the center of your life. Not, you know, uh, valuing and worshiping, uh, you know, God in a small way once a week, but, but living with Him as the, as the centerpiece. Loving Him with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. Um, I, I found a really good quote in one of my commentaries this week that I think describes this really well. This is from Marcus Dodds. But uh, this is how he is trying to get at describing this phrase, walking with God. He says, uh, this phrase, walking with God, is full of meaning. Enoch walked with God because he was his friend and he liked his company, because he was going in the same direction as God and had no desire for anything but what lay in God's path. We walk with God when he is in all of our thoughts, not because we consciously think of him at all times, but because he is naturally suggested to us by all we think of. As when a person or plan or idea has become important to us, no matter what we think of, our thought is always found recurring to this favorite object. So with the godly man, everything has a connection with God and must be ruled by that connection. This is the general nature of walking with God. It's a persistent endeavor to hold all our life open to God's inspection and in conformity to His will. A readiness to give up what we find does not uh, what we find does cause any misunderstanding between us and God, a feeling of loneliness if we have not some deep satisfaction in our efforts at holding fellowship with God, a cold and desolate feeling when we are conscious of doing something that displeases Him. It's communion. It's, it's keeping God centered. It's living every day in light of, of His reality. So again, just bringing something before your hearts, men. Are you walking with God? You know, what is the, the centerpiece of your life? What is the, the thing that you spend the most time with? What what are your, as the question asked this week, what are your walking partners? What would Enoch say to you about the things that get your most attention day by day by day by day? I don't think walking with God means you have to quit your job. I don't think it means you have to abandon your family to commune with God. I think in all those things, you're thinking about God. Just as, as Dodd said there, there's, a, there's a, a, a connectedness to God in everything you do. Almost like when you're fixated on a on, on an idea. Have any of you experienced that before? I, I get that way when I see like a really good movie. 
like a, I, I feel like uh, the movie Inception was that way. Um, I'm a big Christopher Nolan fan. I, I think his, his writing and his movies are just insane. And when I saw that movie, I couldn't stop thinking about it for like a week. Uh, it's just, just like driving, driving my, my brain crazy. Or sometimes if you hear a really interesting podcast on Sasquatches or Bigfoot or something like that, you know, you're just like, oh my gosh, is that a Bigfoot? Is that, you know, it just sort of like simmers in your brain. That's kind of like walking with God. Um, where, where, where you're fixated, where he becomes a part of everything else you do. You know, so are, are you there? Uh, we were made for that kind of intimacy and relationship with God, for walking with him each and every day. Um, so with all that said, let's move to chapter 6 and these Nephilim and what, what are they? Um, okay, this is a very uh, interesting and very confusing part of our text. I will give you that. In fact, I was uh, reading a commentary this week and uh, I saw this quote. And I thought it might be helpful for us. What does Moses mean here? I do not know and I don't believe anyone knows. So far as I'm concerned, the passage, passage is unintelligible. Um, <laughs> I think that's a great way to uh, sum up my views on this passage. Um, No, he's right in a sense, but I want to dive in and I want to reveal to you some of the main interpretations of how people have tried to understand what's happening here, specifically with not not even the Nephilim. The Nephilim are sort of secondary, but what's going on with these sons of God? That's the question. I mean, the daughters of man are pretty clear, but who are the sons of God? What is that referring to? Well, there's two primary interpretations that have been held by Christians through time. There's more than two, but they fall into two big categories, so I'll give you those two. If you want to know more about this, I'm happy to share some commentaries with you. But the first would be what we would call natural interpretation. And this would be the sons of God refer to the children of Seth, so the Sethites. And in some ways, this is the more obvious understanding of the passage because uh, you know, we've just seen in chapters 4 and 5 these two different lines contrasted. Two lines from Adam extending out. One is ungodly from Cain. The other one is very godly from Seth. So the sons of God could be that line, right? That's, that's sort of how that goes. So the sin then that's playing out in chapter 6, if that interpretation is true, is that the sons of Seth are intermarrying with the sons or the daughters of, of, uh, of Cain and therefore they're, they're polluting their spiritual seriousness with people who are not worshiping God or perhaps worshiping false gods. So that's one theory. I think it's a very plausible one. Um, another, the second sort of realm of interpretation is a supernatural understanding of this. And it holds that the sons of God are not men at all, but rather angels. Or more specifically, uh, fallen angels, demons. The way they play out in this passage, um, angels who come and enter the earth and intermarry with human women and have offspring could be happening in one of two ways. These are some, some sort of breakdowns of this theory, but one could be through demonic possession. So perhaps some people hold that angels are genderless. Um, the argument for that is not super strong in the Bible, but some people do hold that. So that being true, perhaps the, the demons possessed, we know possession is very possible and happens, possessed humans, uh, possessed man that then married women and, and, and that's what's going on here. That's possible. Another argument could be that it's just straight up intermarriage, uh, which Sounds crazy, sounds wild, but it's plausible. You even see, if you're, we're going to see this in, in a few weeks or in the spring, but um, uh, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, the angels come to sort of rescue Lot out of Sodom before it's destroyed, and the Sodomites want to have relations with these angels. So uh, angels do have some sort of, or can have, maybe certain types of angels can have, um, this, this form of, uh, you know, a, a human body. Um, and, and so 
We don't know, but uh, it's really interesting. I will say this. I came into this passage with a very firm uh, belief that the first one was what was true, a natural understanding of this. In fact, as I studied just the text on its own, that's the one I held to. But I will tell you this. As of this moment, I am pretty firmly in the second camp. I actually do think that this is fallen angels, demons, entering humanity, intermarrying with mankind and bearing children with them. And the reason why I have this is because of a a number of things. I want to show these to you, and I have to be quick here. So um, I'm going to give you some passages that we don't have time to read in full. But a few things why I think this is true. Uh, First, this is the oldest view. Um, This is the one that, that we see oldest in history as far as like, analysis and commentary on scripture. So Jewish writers exegeted Genesis 6 this way in their earliest writings um, that are outside of scripture. We don't see this sort of commentary playing out in scripture, but uh, the book of Enoch, the book of Jubilees, the Septuagint, um, and the Dead Sea Scrolls all show evidence of this line of thinking among the Jewish people as they interpreted um, Genesis 6. And a lot of these are written before the coming of Christ. So even before the New Testament, some Jewish commentary held to this view. Secondly, and this is maybe the biggest piece in the pie that tipped me the other way, um, it has to do with the way the New Testament handles this concept. So this line of interpretation actually does appear to show up. It's not conclusive, but does appear to show up in the New Testament in three passages. If you want to write these down and study them, here they are. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, and also 9. And then Jude chapter 6. And all three of these are dealing with the flood and spirits. And it specifically is dealing with spirits that, that God put in judgment, put in chains at the time of the flood, and they will never be released from their chains until the final judgment. So just an interesting thing where a lot of commentators are like, what's going on there? Well, when you read it in light of what's happening in Genesis 6, it really does seem like these fallen angels, these spirits, God judged them very harshly, put them in chains. They're still in those chains. And in fact, one of those passages is the one, if you've ever been confused by it, it's when after Jesus is resurrected, it says he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. That's one of, that's uh, 1 Peter 3. So go read them. It's interesting. Here's a few other things. Uh, this is also held by uh, some of the early church fathers um, after the, the age of Christ. Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian, Origen, all three of them held this view. Um, also significant, the, the phrase, sons of God, its normal use in the Old Testament is when referring to angels. Uh, this shows up multiple times in the book of Job with that reference. Um, and then also, I think this is persuasive, the sons of God are really wicked here, which if they're the Sethites who have been godly and walking with God, it's just, it just doesn't quite make sense that suddenly they're, they're filled with this lust, striving for fame, fertility. It just feels inconsistent with the line of Seth. And then maybe to top it all off, what about these Nephilim? They, the children that these sons of God and these daughters of man have are these mighty Nephilim, which is just confusing. We don't fully understand what that even is, but it does appear to me to be some sort of like supernatural human hybrid. Um, so I'm not saying that that's normal and like what we encounter today. I am saying that's strange and weird. Um, but to me, truly, this seems like the most plausible interpretation of this text when you look at it all. That being said, here's our third point that I wanted to try to make. Um, where is it? I know. Demons are real and they want to kill you. Um, they want to destroy you. Um, whether or not that is the proper interpretation of this text, I want you to know this point is true, especially as we approach Halloween. 
Like I, on my street right now, there's a, a house that is just decorated like crazy for Halloween. And front and center in the yard is this huge demon creature. I mean, 15 feet high, wings, red eyes. It's animatronic, so when you walk by, the head like snarls and looks at you. And I just, I keep walking by with my kids, walking to the park, and I keep thinking to myself, why would you do this? It, it's not a cartoon. Demons are real, family. They're very real, and all throughout the Bible, we know that, that they do want to destroy us. Satan didn't just go away quietly after Eden. He didn't just slither away and declare victory and say, I did it. Mankind has fallen. They're living in sin. Now I'm done. No, he and the fallen angels have been attacking humanity ever since, trying to destroy with temptation, with, with possession, with all sorts of uh, horrible things. Family, we may live in a world that's immersed in materialism, that just everybody around us thinks the world is just stuff. It's just protons and electrons and, and the things we can measure, family. But we know from the Bible the world is more than just stuff. We live in a spiritual, supernatural world. Angels are real. God is real. Demons are real. So I say all that to say uh, we need to be on guard. We need to live sober lives. Don't mess with this stuff. Pray for your kids. Pray prote protection over your homes. Live in the armor of God. Uh, pray against uh, the, the powers and the principalities of this earth. We don't live in a, with, our, with our battle just against flesh and blood. It's against bigger things. When you're encountering spiritual problems in your life, don't assume it's uh, material in nature. When you're dealing with depression and with anxiety and with um, suicidal things in, in your loved ones, I mean, these things are spiritual and it's demonic in nature. So fight the war in spiritual ways. Don't live blind to those things. Um, and with that, it's 7 o'clock. So I did have a fourth point. I'll do this for you. I will talk in my office and add it to the podcast if you'd like to know it. But, uh, but I think we'll have to stop there for the sake of time. Demons are real. They do want to kill you. God's stronger, uh, which is good to remember. Jesus, we love you. Whatever these Nephilim are, we know that you are, uh, are stronger than all that. So I just pray as we go through our lives, as we encounter spiritual realities in our life, Lord, I pray that we'd have eyes um, on you, not, not eyes to get curious and to experiment, to explore the dark realities of, of supernatural uh, existence, but, but Lord, to take refuge in you, to uh, stand strong in your name, to... to place our feet firmly on the path that leads to life, to walk our lives with you as the center of it all. Lord, let us, let us be men in the line of Seth. Let us be men in the line of Enoch and Noah, living our lives with you at the center. Uh, let us not walk in the way of sin, trying to glorify our own names. It is so tempting as men to live our lives for our own ambitions, to live our lives for our own glory, to bend every bit of our dominion that you've given us for your glory towards ourselves. Father, help set us straight. Bend our hearts back to you and, and, and allow us to live faithfully as a result. It's in your name we pray all these things. Amen. All right, guys, you're dismissed. We'll see you next week. Hey, man, as promised, I wanted to circle back up here and give you the fourth point. I know we ran out of time this morning during Men of the Word to conclude the points that I had prepared. If you're type A like me, you're probably twitching a little bit that your fourth fill-in-the-blank wasn't filled in there. So here it is, uh, point number four. Amidst his just judgment of sin, God gives grace. Amidst his just judgment of sin, God gives grace. Okay, so uh, what we're looking at here specifically is in chapter 6, those final verses um, where God begins to uh, foretell his coming judgment in the flood. We're going to get into this in a big way next week as we dive into the flood narrative itself. Um, but what I want you to see even here from the start is where that was coming from 
and what God promises even in the midst of it. So where it was coming from was just judgment. I mean, the, the, the state of the world as we approached the flood was utterly filled with sin. And you see that so clearly in verse 5 of chapter 6 when we're told that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I mean, I don't know how you write a sentence that would you know, make the situation any worse. That is a state of utter depravity, total depravity on the earth, that every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. The Bible gives us other glimpses of, of sin and, and how bad it can be in our hearts in other places, but I think this one stands at the top of the mountain there. It is... Um, the, the absolute worst description of, of how sinful we can be. Um, and it's, to be honest, it, it's just an extension of, of what we talked about last week, that our sin in our lives, left unchecked, you know, unleashed out into the world, this is what it looks like. The human heart is desperately sick, um, sinful beyond measure, the Bible says. And, and when it's unleashed without restraint, this is where things end up. And God's response to it, we're told, <clears throat> is one of regret, one of grief, and one of sorrow. He sees all this sin, and he responds by a decision to bring judgment against it. Um, he is going to wipe out, to blot out mankind from the face of the earth. Um, and what I want you to know, even, this is a, even though this is a big judgment and a significant judgment, um, what is so clear from the, the context, from the verses that surround it, is that it's just. This is a just judgment of God. God had created a perfect world. He uh, stood at the end of chapter 1 and, and, and called it all very good. You know, he had blessed it and, and released mankind to live in it. And because of sin, here just four chapters later, uh, at the end of chapter 5, heading into chapter 6, we are now seeing that the situation has completely reversed. Um, sin has corrupted creation. And now God has to undo creation. He has to pour out judgment in order to uh, bring righteousness back to the earth. Um, the sin is wide and, and judgment is deserved. So God decides to give it. Um, so it's just, it's just judgment. But even in the midst of it, um, you know, as I phrased there in the point, God decides to give grace. Um, amidst all the darkness of this judgment, you're catching a glimpse of grace, some light bursting forth, and it's in the person of Noah. Right there, last verse of our text this week. Uh, verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Um, I think that is such a significant sentence. <clears throat> the Hebrew word for favor there is the, is, uh, the word hen. It's also translated grace in the Old Testament. Um, and, and what we're seeing here is truly just a demonstration of the grace, gracious mercy of God. Noah didn't earn this. He found it, we're told. He found favor in, in the eyes of the Lord. Um, God decided to give it to him. You know, Noah, just like others on the earth, like all of us today, Noah also deserved the wrath of the flood. He deserved the judgment of God. He has sinned. He has not lived perfectly before God. He hasn't lived every moment of his life on the path of, of walking with God, of, of, of being perfect with God. Um, you know, he might be better than the Nephilim. He might be better than Cain. He might be better than the sinful line of Cain, but he does not live up to God's perfect standard, which, you know, God requires perfection. So here in the person of Noah, we are catching a foretaste of um, our status before God in Christ. 
that grace is given undeservedly upon us as a protection against the deserved judgment of God to our sin. It's His judgment that is just, and it is His grace that allows us to um, survive it, to get to the other side of it. Um, and this is totally what we're going to see unfolding next week as we uh, begin to dive into the study of the flood and spend some time uh, focusing on that um, next Wednesday. Yes, we will see wrath. Yes, absolutely, we're going to see judgment from God. Um, and all of that will be punishment for sin that is deserved. 100% absolutely that's true. But amidst it, God is going to show himself to be merciful. He's going to show himself to be gracious. He's going to show himself to be kind. And totally undeservedly, he's going to protect mankind through his judgment. So all that being said, the final question I would just ask and, and, and encourage you to reflect on in your heart this morning would be this. Have you received this mercy from God? You know, have you also, like Noah, found grace from God? For us today, it is found in no other name than the name of Jesus. Uh, we will not, any of us, stand on our own before God. No one ever has and no one ever will. Noah didn't. We won't. It is by grace alone that we are saved <clears throat> by finding favor with God. And we find it in the person and in the finished work of, of Jesus Christ. You know, on that cross, he provided a perfect atonement for, uh, for our sin. And he provided a perfect redemption so that all who believe in his name might be saved. That is the, the clear teaching of the New Testament, the clear teaching of the gospel. Salvation by grace through faith for all who believe. So if you this morning are still in some way trying to earn your way before God with your own righteousness, trying to stand before God clothed in uh, your own goodness, just know it will always fail. Man shall not be justified by works of the law. Romans 3 is so clear. We are justified in one way, and that way is through faith, faith in Christ for all who believe. Um, so receive his mercy. Find grace in God through Christ. Uh, trust in Jesus and, and his grace given to us on the cross, <clears throat> and therefore be reconciled with God um, and saved from his judgment. Um, here in the flood, and, and we'll talk about this more next week, but we see judgment pouring out in water, water that destroys the earth, that is judgment of God upon the earth. Um, but we're told in Scripture of a coming judgment of fire, um, a second judgment that will, will come soon. When Jesus returns for a second time, he will not come to provide atonement for sin, but, but for um, judgment for it. So um, go, stand under the grace that God has given. Find grace in Christ and be saved. I uh, hope all that makes sense. If you got any questions, I know that the Nephilim stuff was complicated this morning. So if you got questions here to help, glad to share any of the resources that I have um, to help as much as possible this stuff makes sense for you. But uh, love you guys. Have a great week. We'll see you next Wednesday.